Well, welcome. Good morning. Uh, my name is John Allen. Happy New Year. I hope you guys had a great Christmas. Um, I know I did. Uh, we actually spent a lot of time on the road. We drove eight hours to Pennsylvania to my uh, in-laws, my wife's family, her parents, her brother and their family, and, and uh, it was a great time. Um, it was a, a definite change of pace, lots of driving, lots of time on the road. The kids did a lot of sleeping, which was good, so it was like a, a little bit more time of like reflection and that sort of thing. There was also the uh, DVD player, and I think I know all of the words to the whole movie, Rapunzel. Um, <laughs> But uh, anyway, it, it was a good time. Um, I also uh, got a chance to spend a lot of time in the woods. Uh, my father-in-law is a big bow hunter, and so I like to do it also. So we, we had a chance to kind of uh, go out in the western Pennsylvania woods and sit there and wait for that massive buck to come out. That never did. Um, so I had a, a lot of time sitting and staring at squirrels and birds and um, thinking in my imagination about that big deer that never walked out. But um, it was a good time, though, again, to just reflect and pray and a good change of pace and to think about all that God has done in the past year, even couple of years, uh, in our lives, in our church, um, in my life, and, and uh, really kind of process through all that has happened and pray through uh, what God has placed before us what God has placed before my life in, in, in regards to my own personal walk with Jesus and my family and as a church as well. Um, and, you know, I, I think sometimes whenever we talk about this past year to two years, especially when people in general, like if you turn on the news and you hear things, you hear people talking about this past year or two years, the word that comes up all the time is like dumpster fire. Right? Like, that's how people describe 2020 and 2021. It's a dumpster fire. Right? That's encouraging. Right? So, like, then you talk about, like, 2022, and you're like, yay. It's a new year. Right? It's almost like we enter this thing with apprehension. Right? Like, the, the, the most encouraging stuff I've heard about 2022 is it can't be as bad as the last two years. Right? Well, the reality is that we all know that it can and so that's not encouraging, right? That's like, well, how do we do this? Um, and so as I'm processing through, as I'm thinking about the past couple of years, you know, as I step back and I turn off all the fear-mongering and the clickbait and all of the, like, the craziness of, uh, that, that this world tends to heap on the narrative, right? As all of that is just sort of silenced, and I'm able to process through things with just myself and the Lord. And I think about this past year, and I think about the past two years even, it became a, a lot more apparent of just how good God is and how faithful he's been to his people, and specifically to our church. Like, I found, I found myself extremely thankful they're just praising God in the woods, right? Like I just processing through all of these things and, and the more I prayed about what God has been doing in our church specifically, the more I sensed that God was really doing something special in Risen Church. 
And I mean that. Like that is the phrase and the word that I felt like God had placed on my heart was that he has been doing something special in our church and wants to continue, is going to continue to do something special in and through Risen Church. And so as I, as I think about that term even, like special, right? It's kind of a weird term. That, that's really what he placed on my heart. So what does that mean, right? Like what's so special about Risen Church? Um, like I said, I spent an abnormal amount of time praying about this and seeking the Lord. And as I did, a, a number of things came to mind about what's so special about our church and what God's doing. And, you know, first thing that came to my mind, honestly, is that we have so many people who just love Jesus. Like, I mean, I'm, like this is, I mean, that's what stuck out. Like, as a pastor, God's when the thing that sticks out to you most about your church is how much people love Jesus, that's a win, right? Like, you love Jesus. Like, you love people, yes, right? Like, you love to hang out with each other. You love each other. You love people. But above all, you love Jesus. Like, it's your love for Jesus that feeds your love for each other and your love for people, like you actually end up loving each other with a lot of joy and generosity and you even are sacrificial in the way you love each other. That's different. That's special. Like you've experienced his joyfully generous and sacrificial love for you and it ignites in you that same kind of joyfully generous and sacrificial love for each other. And remember, this isn't just me telling you about, like, as the pastor, like, how I wish you would act. Like, a lot of times when pastors preach, they're kind of like, here's what I want you to do, and you're not doing it, and so you need to suck it up and do better. Like, that's not what this is about. I'm sitting there in the woods, and I'm praying about what God's doing in our lives and in our midst, and this is what he's laid on my heart. And he's saying, this is what's special. This is what's good. This is how I've set your church apart is that you love one another well with my love and it's generous and it's joyful and it's sacrificial. Like, praise God. And that's special. Like, these are the things that God sees when he sees risen church. Now, you may not see that. I know some of you do. But I, I pray that after this message, you will. Now, I know that the word special kind of sounds cheesy, right? It's a little hokey. It sounds like something from HGTV or some documentary about, like, 19 billion kids and counting or something. You know, like, oh, you're special. You're so special to me. It's a little cheesy, right? But I, 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 when you think about what the word special means, and I, I kind of leaned into this, and, it, and it, it literally means to be set apart. Special means that you're set apart, and you're set apart for a higher purpose. You're set apart for something more than yourself, Set apart is sacred. You've been set apart from the rest for a higher purpose, and that higher purpose that Risen Church has been set apart for is the Great Commission and His glory. 
Like that joyfully sacrificial generosity is what sets us apart and it's what also causes us to be steadfast and consistent and authentic and sacrificially generous with your time and your talent and your treasure and it's all for his glory, not your own. It's that joyful and sacrificial generosity that permeates every aspect of our church. And I thought about this and I'm thinking like absolutely everything about our church has that quality to it in one way or another. That sacrificial, generous, and joyful quality. It characterizes our Sunday gatherings. It characterizes the ministry teams as volunteer teams. It, it characterizes the setup team, the, the, the greeters that are serving out in the rain with a smile. It characterizes the kids' ministry and, and the people that are loving on our kids right now, even though they've just gone through Christmas and like they're saturated with kids and all the craziness and all the stuff, and then they come here on Sunday morning and they're loving on your kids too, Right? There's a, there is, don't, look, it's great, it's fun, it's exciting, and it's extremely rewarding, but here's the thing. That's not what makes it special. The thing that makes it so special is that we don't do it because of all the fun. Because sometimes it's not. Right? Like the thing that makes it all worship, the thing that makes it special is because we do it because he's worth it all. Like, it's not just serving, it's worship. We do it because it's a sweet aroma to the Lord. Not just because it's fun or rewarding. We do it because it's worship to him. Like, it's not because we have to, but because he delights in it, which is what makes it joyful even when it's a sacrifice. That's different. See, guys, in a world that's only motivated by selfish gain, that's very special, right? It fuels our community groups. It's what, it, the reason we gather together consistently is not just to be fed or embraced, but also to embrace others also. Like, we gather together to not just be invested in, but to invest in other people. It's not just to be known, but to know other people, right? To know and be known. It's that kind of love for God and his people that covers a multitude of sins, right? It's that kind of sacrificial generosity that swallows offense and consistently offers the benefit of the doubt and real forgiveness. And that's what puts the true gospel on display to a world that doesn't understand grace, right? I, I honestly really appreciate it when people walk in late. I know that's weird. Like, don't hear me and be like, well, now we can come in late to everything. But I... I like, especially if I'm in my community group and people show up, like, at the very end, you know? You know, you know what I'm talking about. Some of you are like, that's me. Right? But I genuinely really appreciate it because what that means is there was a challenge in getting there. What that means is you had an opportunity to not come. What that means is that there was difficulty, there were obstacles, and you pressed through anyway. Why? Because you care about people. Because you care about not just coming for the task or the event, but you care about at least coming in and saying hi and connecting with the people that you care about and the people that God cares about because it matters more than just an event or an obligation, right? And so, like, I, I love that. So if you ever come in late and you're like, you know, you see me over there, I'm not going like, man, they need to get their lives together. I'm thinking, praise God, they're here. Amen? And so, like, I, I, when, you know, this happens, um, this is what, is the result of being catalyzed by a heart that has been consumed by the heart of God, 
right? Like you care about people and you care about the things that God cares about. It's that joyful and sacrificial generosity that's displayed also in our financial giving, right? Like it's a reflection of where our hearts are. Jesus said where your treasure is is where your heart will be also, right? So this is a picture of, um, for us, what matters most, It's the realization that God's primary purpose in human history is to make disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ and that his plan for doing that is primarily through the local church. And so we leverage our resources and our treasure for his kingdom and his glory and we consider it a joy to be generous even and especially when it's a sacrifice. And so it's that kind of faith that propels his kingdom forward upon the earth because the truth is that faith is the currency of heaven. Like faith is the currency of the kingdom of God, not the amount of money, right? It's the faith that that money represents. It's God breathes on that kind of joyful, sacrificial generosity, and he multiplies it for his kingdom's purpose as it goes forward upon the earth. And it's the way that you embrace new people and new families into real gospel community. It's that inviting and bringing and sharing this, this life in Christ, not only with each other, but also our whole city, right? Like, it's even, even we do it when it's awkward. Like, you know, you invite people. It's what you do. I love it. People are coming. Many are staying. People are joining, and they're inviting others into the same thing. New leaders are leaning in and raising up, and disciples who make disciples are popping up all over our church. Now, if you hear that, you might think I'm describing like a megachurch. And if you look around the room, we ain't a megachurch. Right? Not by any stretch of the imagination. But many of you may know, I have actually been on the front lines of what many would call the most dynamic ministries in the world. I've seen them. The megachurch of the megachurch. Right? And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, What God is doing right here in our midst is special. What God's doing at Risen Church is special. And it's because it's got that authentic, eternally significant, kingdom advancing, kick the devil in the teeth kind of great commission quality. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. Amen? We're not here branding and expanding. We're not going around being like, Risen Church! We're going around saying, Jesus, right? This is about him. And it's, it's, it's engaging and it's embracing and it's equipping and it's empowering and it's encouraging and it's all about Jesus. It's real and it's special and it's an honor to be a part of it. And I thank God for risen because I thank God for Jesus and I thank God for you. And as I've reflected over these past year, this past year to two years, I'm just thankful We're not perfect by any means. We got our issues. But because we're perfectly loved, even those issues become catalysts of grace and opportunities for his kingdom to go forward. And I've seen it happen. And I continue to see it happen. Because that's just how good he is. And so as we look forward to 2022 and what God has for our church this year, it's honestly a bit overwhelming. And by a bit, I mean a lot. I'll be honest with you. I get overwhelmed because I, I, I don't mean overwhelmed in the sense of like the anxiety-ridden kind of overwhelming. I mean overwhelming in the sense that I've caught a glimpse of what God is calling us into, and it's greater than, we've all previous, uh, than all that we've previously asked or thought. 
And that's hard to convey. That's hard to kind of like explain, right? Like long ago, God placed Ephesians 3.20 on my heart as a bedrock passage and a prayer for our church. And we consistently commission you almost every week with this passage, right? Now unto him who is able to do abundantly more than all we ask or think according to the power at work within you, go with God, you've been commissioned. Anybody heard that before? If you've been here before, you've heard that before. So I even wrote it or have it written on my sermon notebook right here, Ephesians 3.20. It's, it's been something that I've prayed over our church since before our church was a church, right? And so I've been praying over how God wants me to cast vision for 2022, and God has consistently said, let me do it. Like, and I don't mean like, I'm not going to just be like, all right, so I'm going to go sit down now. But I, what I mean is I want you to as I lean into the opportunities, as I see the opportunities and the challenges that lay ahead of us as a church this year, like I've learned that the only way we're really going to step into what God has for us as a church this year is if we as a church hear his call and his vision directly from him. That if you get it straight from the source, right? Because the truth is, is that's what makes what he's doing in us so special. Is that the source of all that joyful, sacrificial generosity isn't coming from some smooth pitch from the pastor. It's because you have been drinking from the same fountain of grace and the same vision, the source of it, as I have. Is that we've tapped into the same source together and we're drinking from the same fountain of grace and we've caught that same vision for the harvest directly from the Lord of the harvest himself. And so that's what I want to get into this morning. That's what I want to talk about this morning. So turn with me to Matthew uh, 9, verse 35 through 38. And I want to kick off 2022 with a series on prayer, and we're going to call it Pray. Say pray. pray. Creative, I know, right? Pray. But I, I think that the power of prayer is in its simplicity. It's also why it often gets so neglected, right? So here's what I want you to get. If you get nothing else, actually, if you get nothing else this year, I want you to get this, all right? God doesn't just want you to reap a harvest. He wants you to experience the heart of the Lord of the harvest, all right? God doesn't just want you to reap a harvest. He wants you to experience the heart of the Lord of the harvest. Matthew 9, verse 35. Let's take a look. It says this. And Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, go into the harvest and work hard. Some of you are like, did I lose him? Did he... No, that's not what it says. There's a twist here. See, that's what you would expect him to say, right? And Jesus knows that that's what we would expect him to say, but he intentionally says something totally different here. He doesn't just say, go be a laborer. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray. And pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. 
So Jesus is intentionally inserting the priority of prayer here. But why? And isn't that dangerous? Like if all you do is pray, what good's that? Like we should be people of action, right? Like let's go do it. Not just pray about it, let's go be about it. Yes and no. Yes, we are called to be a people of action. In fact, the very next verse is Matthew 10, verse 1, which says, And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. So Jesus definitely calls them to action, and he does, even right after this, empower them to go in his own authority to do the things that he was doing, to go into the harvest. But first, he calls them to prayer. Prayer and action are never mutually exclusive. In fact, we're, we, if we are to follow Jesus and answer his call to go and make disciples, it's a call that prioritizes prayer all the way through. Like prayer comes first, and it comes second, and it comes third, and it comes in the beginning, and it comes at the end, and it comes, it's the very thing that sustains us all the way through. Like action is never, ever to be done without prayer. Because the priority of prayer can't be overestimated, but it is almost always underestimated. Like this is the biggest trouble with sinful people, right? Like we tend to think too much of ourselves and way too little of God. So many people seem to be concerned that if you pray too much, you won't do anything. But that's nonsense. Like, think about that. Really think about that. Because it's just the opposite. Like, you show me a doer who doesn't pray, and I'll show you somebody who's completely missed the point and is about to burn out in a smoke cloud of resentment and bitterness. Maybe Maybe you've seen that. Maybe you've been there. Because God's not just interested in laborers for the harvest. He wants you to catch the heart of the Lord of the harvest. Because that's the only thing that will really sustain you and motivate you and empower you. He wants you to get the why behind the what. He's not interested in slaves. He's after sons and daughters who've tapped into the heart of the Father and enter those fields in rejoicing. So I want to point out three things from this passage about prayer. And why Jesus calls us to prioritize prayer above everything else. First, prayer gives us eyes to see the harvest as Jesus does. Prayer gives us eyes to see the harvest as Jesus does. So take a minute and imagine the situation that's being described here in chapter 9. And and just think about, like, what's going on? Right? Jesus is healing every disease and every affliction. Not just some of them, all of them. And as he does that, the word about him starts spreading everywhere, and people are coming out of nowhere. Like, it would have been absolute pandemonium. Like, the sick and the diseased, crowds of contagious people, the afflicted and the broken, the leper, the cripple, the beggar, the needy, the helpless, the helpless and the harassed, droves of them are pressing in on Jesus, and he healed every single one of them. I mean, that's intense. Every single person who pressed into Jesus was healed. Not one was turned away. Now, if you're picturing like poor, polite, 
people that are kindly asking for mercy here, like, I think you got the wrong image. Like, this isn't sweet little tiny Tim from A Christmas Carol, right? Like, he's not coming up like, please, sir, have mercy. Like, that's not what's going on. Like, I think that's the wrong image. Think, think about what's going on. These are broken people. These are broken and sinful people. They weren't innocent and sweet. They were unclean, and they were unfit to be in the presence of God. That's the point. God had to come to them. These people were desperate. They were probably rude. This is what happens when desperate people are, 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 you get bound by your own carnality, your own flesh. When you're broken, you're broken. These were broken people. They were sinful people. They're probably rude, selfish, greedy. They're diseased and afflicted. In fact, even associating with this crowd would have labeled you along with the outcasts and the needy. And yet, and yet, the truth is that the prerequisite for being healed by Jesus is to admit that you need healing. The truth is that these sick, needy, poor in spirit outcasts were the closest to the kingdom of heaven because they realized their need for the Savior. They were closer than the religious elites of that society. There's no pretentious posturing here. It's just desperation for deliverance from the only one that could bring it. That's what we're seeing. Like, this is what Jesus sees. But what did the disciples see? Like, what did the religious rulers of the upper class of the day see? Were they annoyed by the crowds? Were these people a hindrance or a burden and a problem? Like, what would I have seen in that situation? Like, are they, are they the... Are they trying to, like, just get rid of the crowds? Like, gosh, here we go again. Like, Jesus has his mission. Like, if you're one of the disciples, you might think, well, we're trying to get some stuff done here, and all these people keep getting in the way. Like, let's be honest here. Like, it's difficult to love sinful people. Right? And it is. Sinful people are mean. Sinful people are hateful. They're selfish. They don't care about God. They tend to only care about themselves, especially when they're broken and desperate and afflicted and diseased. Like, I don't know how the disciples felt about these crowds, but I think it's safe to say that there were moments when compassion wasn't their go-to emotion, right? And yet, when Jesus saw the crowds, he didn't just see their brokenness. He saw the source of their brokenness, and he had compassion on them because they were helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd. You can hear an echo of the scripture in Isaiah 53, 6 that was written 700 years before this and said, Isaiah 53, look at it. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So Jesus didn't just excuse their behavior. He came to justify it. He came to rescue and gather his sheep. He came as the good shepherd to rescue these lost sheep. Jesus saw them all running their own way. He saw them surrounded by wolves, and he even saw some of them acting like wolves, devouring each other to get what they want. See, he didn't just see need, though. He saw the true need. Jesus knew that they didn't just need food, and they didn't just need physical healing. He saw that they needed a Savior. And he wants his disciples to see what he sees. And he wants you to see what he sees. He's not blind to their helplessness. He's not blind to their harassment. And he's not blind to their culpability in it all either. 
They're not innocent. And yet, he doesn't just see problems or irritations when he sees the crowds. He sees a harvest. He doesn't just see sour grapes. He sees the potential for fine wine. He doesn't just see wheat, grass, and weeds. He sees the potential for fresh bread. He doesn't just see lost and wayward people. He sees a harvest. Like This is what a true revival is actually all about. It's not about the destruction of our enemies. It's not about, you know, like one political agenda over another political agenda and then just ridding the world of these crazy people. Yes, he'll take care of that one day. (laughs) But for now, it's not about their destruction. It's about their rescue. This is what Jesus came for. Like when you tap into the heart of God, you realize that the people that you thought of as enemies are actually his mission. This is the gospel. That's a radical thought, guys. Like, you want to be more effective in sharing the gospel? Start praying for the lost. Start praying for the people that bothered you. Start praying for your enemies. Like, when you do, you're going to realize that you are them, but for the grace of God, there go I. Right? And that's when you'll not only tap into God's heart for the harvest, you're going to tap into God's heart for you. And there's a deep compassion that comes from that. So what do you see? What do you see when you turn on the news? What do you see when you go to Walmart at midnight? What do you see when you go to work and you see the crowds of people? What do you see? Do you just see problems? Do you just see doom and gloom? Or do you see a harvest? What do you see when you walk down the boardwalk in the middle of uh, the summertime here? The height of tourist season, right? Do you see problems or do you see a harvest? The second thing I want you to see here is when you pray for the harvest, you operate as sons and daughters of the inheritance instead of hired hands or forced slaves. When you pray for the harvest, you operate as sons and daughters of the inheritance instead of hired hands or forced slaves. So when you seriously ask the Lord of the harvest to raise up workers for the harvest, you're going to start to own the harvest, right? Like, so there's a difference between a child who inherits uh, the estate, right, and the hired hand who's only working for money. Think about that. Like, the child labors because they've tapped into the heart of the father. Like, they view the harvest the same way the father does, right? The reward is the harvest, It's not the money. It's not something else. It's not like they're trying to get something on the side in order to be, like, manipulated or or bargained with in order to engage in the harvest. The fruit that they're after, the reward, is the harvest itself. They see what the Father sees. That's how a child operates, right? This is part of the unique relationship that we share with the Father because we both rejoice in the harvest because the motive of the children for the harvest is the same as the Father's. So we rejoice in the harvest even when it's difficult. See, the hired hand only rejoices in the harvest when it's easy because their reward's the same no matter what, right? It's the hired hand that when it gets difficult or when they get their wage, they quit. And they're constantly assessing whether it's worth it or not. That's how you know whether you're operating as a son or a daughter. It's it's, It's worth it always when you have tapped into the heart of the Father. But if you're just doing it for something else, anything else, you're going to constantly assess whether 
Your time, your talent, your treasure is worth it. The only way to get the hired hand to do anything is by offering them something in return because they don't see any real value in the actual work itself. That's why guilt tripping people into serving or volunteering to fill holes doesn't last. You can build massive crowds like that. You can. You can fill holes, right? But it doesn't endure. That's not how, that that manipulative guilt tripping, that's not how Jesus did it. You see, most of the time people don't burn out because they're tired. They burn out because they've missed the point. They never tapped into the heart of the Father. They lost sight of the value in what they're doing, and they're just hired hands. At best, they're hired hands. At worst, they're slaves who are forced into doing something they don't want to do. This is why Jesus is always pointing us to the source. Guilt trips never produce joyful, sacrificial generosity. It only produces hired hands and or slaves. This is dry religion. But by praying to the Father as his children, as the heirs of the inheritance, that's what ignites our hearts to do whatever it takes for as long as it takes to bring in the harvest. And we rejoice the whole way through, through it all, because we value the harvest itself. And the journey is awesome. This is what we're called to. Hired hands only do the bare minimum. When quitting time comes, they go home, but the son or the daughter continues. Why? Because they own it, because they get it, because the heart of the Lord of the harvest is in them. Look at verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So at this point, the disciples are probably pretty apprehensive to engage these crowds, right? Like they're not moved with compassion the same way Jesus is because they don't see the crowds the same way Jesus does. But again, Jesus doesn't just force them straight into the harvest fields that they don't have a heart for. He doesn't send them in thinking that they're better than the lost, or he doesn't send them in as hirelings or slaves who'd rather be doing something else, right? That's dry religion. Jesus railed against that stuff. They resent the work of the harvest because they never caught God's heart for the harvest. That's dry religion. That's why Jesus tells his disciples here to first pray earnestly. Say earnestly. Earnestly. Pray earnestly. It means seriously, passionately to get real with this prayer and to pray to the Lord of the harvest to raise up workers for the harvest. It's a call to get serious about prayer. He's inviting us to experience his passion and to tap into his cry for the lost and then to pray it back to him. It's an invitation to see as he sees and to love as he loves and to be filled with his spirit and even become the hands and feet to a lost and wayward world. The hand, the very body of Christ. This is who the church is. Like this is what it means to be the local church in the body of Christ, filled with his spirit, to be his hands and feet, to be the expression on his face, to be the sound of his voice. My prayer, you've heard me say it before, is that when you get a hug from somebody at Risen Church, that's what it feels like to get a hug from Jesus. This is the embrace. Like, this is what it means to really be a Christian. And it all starts, and it all ends, and it's all motivated and fueled by prayer. And God knows it's not easy work, guys. 
Like this is, the, this is not a bait and switch. This is not a sugar-coated thing. It's difficult. Making disciples who make disciples of Jesus is very real labor. Like fulfilling the Great Commission, building the church, and presenting one another mature in Christ is an overwhelming and daunting task. That's what I mean when I say I'm overwhelmed by what God's called us into. It's overwhelming. It's intense. And it's not just the task of the pastor. It's not just for the professionals, whatever that means. It's the task of every true disciple because this is what we do. And what an honor. Right? This is the ultimate labor. And, and again, it's not sugar-coated. Jesus didn't sugarcoat it. Like, this is not a sales pitch. The hours are long. The work can be frustrating. There's thorns and weeds and snakes and wild animals. It's hot in those fields, and you're going to get dirty. And God's called you to get your hands dirty, to roll up your sleeves and dive in. Like, if you picture these harvest fields, like somebody frolicking through the like, meadow in the cool of the evening, you know, it's like a beautiful grapevine. You go up and pluck a little grape off the vine and, like, frolic over, put it in your little wicker basket. Like, if that's your idea of what the harvest is like, you're very confused. Right? Like, think about that. But that's often how people say, come to Jesus and have the rest of your life just a vacation. You know what I mean? And then you get into it and you encounter spiritual warfare and you deal with sinful people and you're like, not what I thought it was. That's a hireling. Guys, we're not selling a luxury vacation here. We're inviting people to partner together in the greatest rescue mission in the history of the universe. This is the Great Commission. This is the gospel. God became a man, and he lived the life that we couldn't live, and he died the death that we deserved to die, and he conquered death in the grave, and he paved the way to eternal life, and it's an eternal life that starts now, not just one day when we die. This is not just us sitting back waiting for Jesus to come back and going like, everybody's a problem. He's saying, I am here with you now. I've given you eternal life now through the indwelling of his spirit that changes us and empowers us and even changes our affections and unites us together and with the very spirit of God himself to become the hands and feet and arms of embrace. He empowers us and changes us and redeems us to go and make disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples of Jesus from the neighborhood to the nations and embrace them into the family of God and empower them to go and do the same. Like this is the heart of the Lord of the harvest. And you catch that heart by praying to him to raise up workers for his harvest. Like when you pray earnestly and passionately and fervently to him to raise up laborers, then you're going to begin to tap into the why behind the what, and you're going to begin to operate in the overflow of his spirit. You're going to start to see why it's important. You're going to start to see the harvest itself as he does. And you'll start to yearn for those pods of wheat to be transformed into fresh bread and presented mature in Christ. Like you're going to see those sour grapes as opportunities to become fine wine. And when you see them becoming fine wine, you're going to flip out and rejoice. 
and you're going to see the church. That's what I'm, I want you to see what I see. But I can't, you can't get it from me. you got to get it from him. Like, I want you to see what he sees. Like, when you see the lost as Jesus does, you're going to see them the way that they were created to be, not just what they've been corrupted into. And you're going to see what he sees, and you'll understand why Paul said in Colossians 1.29, For this I toil. Say toil. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. If you read the rest of that, you know that he's talking about presenting them mature in Christ. And it's not just for the pastor. Like I said, this is for all disciples. It's what we do. It's when you tap into the heart of God and you join the kingdom of heaven's labor force upon the earth. It's the greatest mission in eternity. Like I said, what an honor. Like that's when we partner together with the one who's able to do abundantly more than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. And that's when we're, when we're asking and thinking, this is what we're doing. We're not just asking and thinking um, and, and dreaming and asking for him to build our little kingdoms. We're asking for his kingdom, to build his kingdom. That's what it's talking about. That's what we're toiling for. It's about seeing the plentiful fields and bringing in an abundant harvest, which is more than we ever dreamed. And yet, we are called to dream. We are called to go to the Lord of the harvest and ask for it and cry out for it and yearn for it as Jesus himself does. Because it's only after we ask that we receive, right? It's only after we knock that the door will be opened. And it's only after we seek that we'll find. Because if you don't ask, you don't receive. You have not because you ask not. The harvest is plentiful. Can you even see it or do you just see problems? Will you ask him to help you see it? Will you pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to raise up laborers? Maybe all you can see is your own problems. That'll blind you, man. Like, it'll, it'll, maybe this morning God's calling you to take your eyes off of yourself and place them on his heart for the harvest, to see the world around you, to see the opportunities around you. But the only way that's going to happen is if you place your eyes first and foremost upon your father, to trust in him as a son or a daughter that he loves. He's got you. He's taking care of the rest. Trust him. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all else be added unto you. It's not necessarily a salvation issue, by the way. When you deal with this stuff, look, like if you're struggling with that, like if you're getting distracted, this is a world that's constantly trying to distract us and lie to us about our identity in Christ. Like if that's you, welcome to the party, right? This is part of the why we gather together and remind us of what's true and what's good and what he's calling us to, Amen. So that's why it's important to not only regularly go to your father and hear his words of grace and truth, but to actually believe them and to take every other thought captive to the word of the Lord. Yeah. And so finally, I want to close with this. Prayer is effective. Say effective. effective. Prayer is effective both in what it does in us and what it does through us. All right? So prayer is effective both in what it does in us and 
through us. Last week we talked about how important silence and solitude is with God, right? If you missed last week, um, there were lots of people that did. <laughs> it, was, it was that overlap week, right, um, between Christmas and New Year's. If you missed, I want to encourage you, though, to take the time to go online and listen to that message. Like we talked about how important the rhythms of silence and solitude are for our walks with Jesus and how he consistently demonstrated these quiet times with the Father throughout his life and ministry. And we talked about how having these quiet times isn't just Christianity for beginners, but it's Christianity for Christians, right? Like it's crucial for our relationship and our walk with Jesus. Like gospel community is so important, amen? But it's not exclusive of authentic, individual, and personal time with Jesus. Like, it's not like silence and solitude is the spiritual discipline for the introverted, and gospel community is the spiritual discipline for the extroverted, right? Like, God's called us to engage in both. And if you only do one and not the other, then you're going to either isolate yourself from people or isolate yourself from God or isolate yourself from both, right? Like, if you come into a community of people, you ever done this? Maybe you have, probably all of us at one point have, where you come in and you're like, okay, I'm here, but I feel distant from these people. Why? It's because something is different. Like, they know something I don't. And the truth is, it's that they know someone you don't. Right? And that quiet time, that time where you're spent alone behind closed doors and you're crying out to him and you've tapped into his love in a personal and dynamic and intimate way for you and you delight in his delight and then you gather together with people who have also tapped into that, that's when the church gets ignited and unified. Amen? And we point one another to that personal, loving Good, gracious, holy, forgiving God. That's what we do. So spending regular, daily, intentional time in silence and solitude with the Lord and just soaking up his word and his presence and praying is extremely important. And not just because of what it does in you, but because of what it does through you. And here's what I mean by that. Like it's all part of the process of turning, you know, your own sour grapes into fine wine, Right? Like, you got to remember, you are also part of the harvest. Like, you're in the process. This is that process of sanctification. And yet, your prayers also very much matter. It's not just about changing your heart and renewing your soul. Your prayers matter. Like, those moments of leaning into the heart of God and crying out to the Lord of the harvest aren't just effective in changing your heart. They're effective in changing the hearts of other people. Think about that. Like when you cry out to the Lord of the harvest to raise up laborers, he actually raises up laborers to bring in the harvest. It's easy to read through this. And I, man, I'm telling you, it's easy to just get caught up in like this whole just super like fatalistic idea that we're all just puppets in a grand scheme. And and what we do doesn't really matter when we're just passively walking through this thing because God's got a plan and it doesn't really matter what we do. But what we see in scripture is something very different. It's an intentional action of obedience and it has great power. Now, you might say, how does that work? Like, why should I even pray? Again, doesn't God have this whole thing planned and figured out already? And the answer is yes. Yes, he does. God is absolutely sovereign. And, say and, And. you are absolutely responsible. 
We'll talk more about this later. Here's what I want you to see. He has sovereignly designed his perfect plan of redemption to be brought about through your persistent and persevering prayers. He has sovereignly designed his perfect plan of redemption to be brought about through your persistent and persevering prayers. It's almost like he wants to partner in this gospel or something. If that makes your head explode, good. That means he's God and you're not. Right? So quit trying to outsmart him and start crying out to him. We'll talk more about this next week, but I'll give you a little foretaste here. Um, God doesn't give apart from prayer what he's ordained to give through prayer. God doesn't give apart from prayer what he's ordained to give through prayer. Or as Charles Spurgeon put it, prayer moves the arm that moves the world. Or as James... In the book of James, 5 verse 16 says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So as we head into 2022, I want to give the first month to prayer and the second month and the third month and the fourth month and all the way to the 12th month. And then we'll start over in next January, right? But I genuinely want to be intentional in praying this month as we kick off 2022. In fact, I want to invite you to fast and pray with us every Wednesday in the month of January. So this week we're going to start small, just fast lunch on Wednesday. That means don't eat lunch. That's what it is. Um, but it's not just not eating, right? Like it's a time where we want to, during that time, encourage you to pray to the Lord of the harvest to raise up laborers for the harvest. That's specifically the prayer. That's specifically what I want you to lean into. I want you to spend time asking God to give you eyes to see the plentiful, ripe fields for harvest that are right in front of you and ask him to raise up laborers. Not only to be a laborer, but to raise up laborers for that harvest. I want you to pray to the Lord of the harvest. And when you get hungry, I want you to say, God, I want your harvest even more than I want food. Fasting and prayer is this exercise in crucifying the flesh. Like it doesn't feel good. And you have to rely on the Spirit of God more than you rely on your own emotions. Because when you're hungry and when you're tired, your flesh is going to lie to you. That's what happens. And that's when we press in and that's when His Spirit is strengthened within us. That's when we recognize what's true and what's a lie. Now, we're not bargaining with God to get what we want. That's not what fasting is. Like, you're not just suffering and saying, look how much I'm suffering, God. Right? That's not how it works. God's not, like, doesn't take pleasure, pleasure in you suffering. Right? That's not what it is. It's not bartering with God. It's aligning with him. It's saying, God, I, I am not leaning into my comforts, which so often distract me and consume me. I'm leaning into what is true and what is your spirit rather than my own flesh. Aligning with God to bring about what he wants. So we're saying we want his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, even more than the most basic carnal desire. We're saying, God, I don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the Father. And so we're saying, give us vision for your church and for your harvest in 2022. And so fasting then becomes a feast for the soul and a catalyst for his kingdom. 
and we're going to cry out. So let's, let's start small with just one meal this week, and then we'll go from there. All right? Let's pray.